This is Writing Excuses, episode, season two, episode three. 15 minutes long because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Dan. And I'm Howard. And we have Brandon Mole again. Introduce yourself again, Brandon Mole. I'm Brandon Mole, the guy that writes the Fable Haven series and the Candy Shop Board. Yeah, middle grade fantasy books, which are excellent and I have read, um, and a New York Times bestselling author. He is here. We're doing more question and answers from Mountain Con um, in lovely Layton, Utah. Um, they were kind enough to give us a room, and we're going to just go ahead and start with uh, with Brandon. We had had we had audience members write out questions this time, and we're going to read them and then answer them. Okay, how do you go about creating characters that feel real when you don't have experience? For example, I've never been a twelve-year-old girl. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are missing out, man. <laughs> okay, how do you write characters yeah. that are very different from yourself? Which would make sense. Since yeah. I've got a 13-year-old girl yeah. as my main character yeah. in the book, and, and, I, and I have people tell me it sounds like a 13-year-old girl. It does. So how do you do it? Um, I try to figure out what a 13-year-old girl would talk. Like, 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 like that's, that's sort of like the simple answer, but it's, it's a, I think it has to do with, truly does have to do with be, being a good observer, trying to pay attention to how how these different types of people talk. If you don't feel like you have your finger on the pulse of how a certain kind of person would be, maybe don't make them a character. You know what I mean? Like, or at least a viewpoint character. Yeah, 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 exactly. At least a viewpoint character. We have to kind of be in their head. Um, to, to get in her head, it's just like, I don't know. I think it had something to do with when I saw Spirited Away by Miyazaki. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's an old Japanese guy doing a pretty good little girl. And I was like, I could probably do one too then. Okay. And, and so part of it was having a little bit of a little just kind of the guts to take it on and, and see if it feels real and see if people agree. And I can't say there's an easy answer to that one. You know, for yeah. some kinds of characters, the easiest, easiest way to go about it is to immerse yourselves in, you know, their culture. You, you want to learn about how old people talk, sit down and talk to some old people. You know, volunteer at the retirement like home. It's, I'm not that old. I'm only 40. <laughs> hey, that's old. 40's the new 16. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> I skateboarded. He did. He um, surfed on the back of the car. Uh, but, but, but there are some cases, like with the 12-year-old girl, for instance, that just won't work. I mean, as much as 40 may be the new 16, I can't hang out with a bunch of 12-year-old girls <laughs> because there are going to be legal repercussions, or at least parental ones. Um, I, I have tried to write a uh, female protagonist before, and I was horrible at it. I, I want to try it again soon, but it just was not, it didn't work at all for me. One thing that did work very well for me, though, was writing a sociopathic main character. Um, and that may be because I have those tendencies myself, but it's primarily because that comes with a prepackaged psychology. That was like the entire you know, American Psychology Association handing me a character sketch in the form of massive books. If, if you're going to do something like that, it, it's very easy because if this character is a sociopath, then this and this and this and this are all going to be true. And that will inform how they act and that will inform what they do. And that makes it uh, very easy. If you, Dan, if you're writing about defective people and, and you can read up on the defects, it should hold true that there is child's development literature out there somewhere that's not about defective people that you could perchance research. That's and true. And a big part of it too is that to remember everybody is a person. Everybody's a human yeah. being. Yeah. And everybody has their own personality quirks. And so figure out this 12-year-old girl, what's her personality quirks and what you know, does she want? Yeah. And is she cautious or is she, or is she daring? And, and figure those things out and 
those kind of questions are how you bring any character to life. I, um, yeah. I often get this question myself because Mistborn's about a 16-year-old girl. Um, that's the, the primary viewpoint protagonist of the, of the trilogy. Um, and I've, I've had lots of praise of that. Um, what the people haven't seen are my first few books where I tried to write um, female viewpoints that I failed at miserably. Um, and so the question that follows is, what did you learn? Um, and I actually learned um, what, what Mull just said. Um, I realized early on one of the problems I was having with writing opposite, you know, the opposite gender was I was including them in the book simply for the purpose of being a romantic interest. Um, and then when I got into their viewpoint, they felt flat as a character because um, I hadn't developed them to be their own person. I had developed them to be there. Be and, a trophy character. Yeah, be a trophy <laughs> character. And when I started to say, okay, you know, ask yourself those questions. What is important to this character that isn't important to the other characters? What is this character's conflict that is, wouldn't be a conflict, it isn't for conflict for someone else? What, find the conflict, find the driving motivations. And when I started to do that, mixed with um, spending some time yeah. talking to my teenage sisters, it came out. <laughs> uh, when you sit down to write a character, put it into terms that you are familiar with. If you've never been a 12-year-old girl, yeah, but you have been scared, or you have been adventurous, or you have been you know, whatever, something that you do understand. Give, give that person, like we're talking about, those human qualities that do make them relatable to you, and then you'll be able to write it much better. All right, the next question actually is kind of similar, so we're going to yeah, go Yeah, let's grab this. Do How this do you develop character quirks that come across as realistic and story-appropriate? Character quirks that are realistic and story-appropriate. Um, when I'm building character quirks, you know, story appropriate is, is a good question because I'm looking for stuff that ties in honestly to the conflicts and to the setting. I'm looking for quirks that in some way can tie into other parts of the story. Not all of them have to be, but, um, but it, it's more useful that if you're going to have a quirk, if you're going to have a shy character, if their character quirk is they're shy, if the plot is going to require them to do things. Yeah, that exactly. Make them, I've got yeah. lots and lots of characters and in many ways, I define them for myself by quirks that I know they've got. If they're quirks, if they're goals, if they're objectives, if the things that make them real characters to me aren't central to the story that's currently being told, uh, they don't get the spotlight yeah. for that story. Think about Monk, um, the, the character. Um, this is the, the OCD yeah. investigator. He's got, he's got this obsessive compulsive disorder the reason it works so brilliantly for a character is it keeps interfering and it's it keeps being it's there present all the time giving i've had problems sometimes where i've given a character a character quirk and we i can i never remember that they have it and my readers don't either <laughs> because it's not important yeah. to what's going on and so it's, it makes them forgettable as a character and it makes the quirk forgettable yeah, which leads into one thing is that if the quirk is there or if a personality trait is there, it sometimes helps to make it a little bit extreme. Yeah. A little more extreme than it might even be in a real person because it's not a real person. It's an illusion. It's words on a page. And sometimes making that illusion a little bit extreme helps it feel more real, even though it's kind of counterintuitive. Yeah, one of your character quirks is um, the, the kid that carries around the backpack. Um, you know, I love that. Yeah, quirk. Seth. Yeah, that little Seth guy, has yeah. like what does he call it? Is it Venture Pack or something like that? Yeah, it's, yeah, his emergency it's, kit or yeah, whatever. Yeah, it's it's like his his bat belt, um, but yeah. it's it, but with kid stuff. But kid stuff in it, and it works great because he gets into trouble. He's like, well, I've got a flashlight in here, and it's nothing really big, 
you know, it's not like he's pulling out something that's that's all that's saving the day. But it, yeah, he's not like MacGyver, like yeah, saving the day with the rubber not, band. It's not, mm-hmm. it, and it works really well for a character quirk for that reason. It doesn't become the plot focus, but you're always remembering it because he's got it there, and you remember, hey, this kid's a pack rat. He likes to he likes to plan. He likes to think of himself as a great adventurer, and so he might have duct tape. He's not going to be able to save the world with what he's got in there, but he might pull out some duct tape and say, hey, I've got this, um, and it works very well as a quirk. Um, it. it from my perspective writing horror, one of the things I'm always trying to do is you know, make things disturbing, make them spooky. And so when I was looking for quirks to give to my main character, I thought, well, what does he do for fun? How about he cooks? That was in the first book, but nobody cared because I didn't make it interesting. In the second book, I said, well, let's make this really spooky by saying that he doesn't cook meat because it reminds him of human flesh. And all yeah. of a sudden, that made him creepy, and that made that quirk a lot more interesting. It did, and I remember how that worked. Yeah. Today's Writing Excuses is brought to you by Writing Excuses, the CD. Season one, all packed onto one disc, nine hours long, because you're no longer in that much of a hurry. And we are geniuses. Available at poddisc.com and wherever fine poddisc.com CDs are sold. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're going to have Dan read the next one because, yet again, someone has given us one that really plays off of this and goes in well, so... Here it goes. Do you have any suggestions for avoiding character traps? Stereotypes such as the overlord, the farm hero, etc., or all the same? When you say traps, I... I Stereotypes. Tropes. Tropes, yeah. Um, You know, the best advice I ever got on this was um, from our friend uh, Dave Wolverton slash David Farland, um, and he said... When you're, when you're designing a, a place for a character in a plot, one of the great things to ask yourself is, why can't this character fill this role? If you're developing you know, the, the heroic lead, asking yourself, why can't they? Why can't they? Why can't they? And that will give you these quirks and these sort of these, these handicaps and things. If you're asking yourself, you're not, you're not trying to design the perfect character for that slot in the story. You're trying to design an imperfect character who's interesting in that slot in the story. I think that helps. What else do you guys have? How do you avoid making just the cliches? I think the cliches that are more, you're more likely to fall into are the, uh, the villain and the supervillain cliches because yeah. we've seen that so many times. Sometimes it works. Sometimes you can tackle it in a new way. You can take the trope and you can say, you know, why do people keep writing this? There's got to be a reason why supervillains do this. And then you look at, oh, well, there is a reason they keep doing this even though it, it often gets them into trouble, and here it is. And you look at it from a new angle, and now it's not a trope, and people you know, accuse you of being original. Um, strange attractor, right? Um, the, the thing I've talked about where you want, the best ideas are those that are both familiar and strange at the same time. It's something, something that you're familiar with mixed with something new. A, a magical preserve for, or a preserve for magical creatures is an excellent example of this. It's just one of those ideas you can say, in one, a wildlife preserve, we all know what a wildlife preserve is, yeah. but it's for magical creatures. Boom, strange attractor. Doing that for characters, <clears throat> it's this character that you are familiar with, done this new way. But if too many people have done it that new way, then it becomes the familiar, and you're going to need something new as well. Um, in, in, in some cases, this can be as simple as just replacing, for example, the farm boy with something else, the, the baker's assistant. You know, yeah. uh, it's a very simple change. It's basically just swapping something out for something else. But if you really force yourself to think, how would a baker's assistant go about this? How would they react? How would they have been raised differently? 
then that can give you enough of a twist on the old saw that you can make it work. Okay, let's see. Um, this is a perfect one for Howard, so I'm going to give it to you. Okay. I've read some script writing books that talk a lot about the three-act structure. Do you think that's relevant or helpful for fiction? Uh, maybe for shorter fiction. Uh, short answer, yes. Um, long answer, Absolutely. yes, but don't be a slave to it. Yeah. I mean, you're the, you're the three-act format guy. You always talk about the three-act format in storytelling. Outline for us the three-act format and why it's useful. Uh, okay, there's a dozen different ways you can approach this. Uh, the way I approach it is act one, your protagonist is presented with a problem that he is actually reasonably competent at solving and sets out to solve it. By the end of act one, it looks like we're close to a solution. In act two, we discover that the problem is not the real problem. It goes beyond that, and the protagonist is shown to be completely out of his or her depth in this uh, case. And when I say protagonist, it can be a team, it can be, you know, uh, whatever. It, it doesn't have to just be one person. Um, but yeah, that's where you get your catastrophe and your big dark. Um, that, that's where things are really the darkest. And then in Act Three, things start to come together. The problems are still every bit as bad as they were before, but the protagonist has actually stepped up and is, uh, you know, has found a way around his own weaknesses yeah. or whatever, and mm -hmm. and. Yeah. Climax, resolution, roll credits. Mole, do you think in three-act format? Um, I, I think in a, in a very, in a, in, a, in a simple way, a way somebody once explained to me where it's act one, get your character up a tree. Act two, throw stones at him. Act three, get him down. <laughs> and, <laughs> nice. and, and, and as far as like, as far as speaking of it super simply, I, you've got characters and you've got to get them in trouble. And then, and then the trouble has to get thicker. And then it has to look like they're doomed, and then they have to figure something out, you know, to their success or failure or whatever. And Dan and, Willis and you've describes got a story. It, Dan yeah. Willis describes it as the three disaster format. You have a disaster in Act One that the protagonist is close to being able to solve. You have a disaster in Act Two, which is much worse, and you have a disaster in Act Three, which is like the end of the world, but they manage to to pull it out. Um, I work with a lot of authors in in NaNoWriMo, and a lot of the time there, that's National Novel Writing Month. And a lot of the time, I hear this constantly, they will finish their book early. They're like, I thought this was going to be huge, but I'm done after like 90 pages. And usually that's because they're not using a three-act structure, and yeah. they're making it too easy to solve their problem. And the way I always go about this is just what, what we call try-fail cycles, that they have to try and fail at least twice, at least twice, before they can actually succeed. And that is how I think of the three-act structure is let's let them mm -hmm. Don't let them solve this too easily. Now, with regard to is it, is it relevant for or helpful for shorter fiction, uh, on my site, I recently praised uh, Lawrence Schoen's uh, Buffalito short stories, um, which don't adhere to the try-fail cycle real well. Uh, this guy uh, ends up in trouble early in the story and then comes up with a solution and solves his problem in one go. And in many cases, that's the defining element in short fiction because you weren't trying to write a three-act thing. You're trying to write something that didn't have a, a full try-fail cycle. And that's okay. It's just not going to work for a novel. You know, honestly, I'm going to say I don't think in three-act format. Um, I analyze in three-act format, but I don't think that way, um, personally. Um, I, I never really have. I, look, I do look for try-fail cycles, but I, I'm not a slave to it. 
I'm trying to write a really great story. And yes, you want, I want things to get worse before they get better. When you say you analyze in three-act format, when the editor kicks it back to you for the first rewrite. No, I don't. I analyze. When a book is done, I can say, okay, here's act one, here's act two, act okay. here's act three. I never think in three acts when I'm writing it, um, partially because I'm writing books that are 250,000 words long. And in that case, um, I, I can't break it down into three acts. I have to break it down into 12. I'm breaking it down to 15. <laughs> right. um, I've got... I've got lots of different acts. I'm writing 15 is divisible epic. by 3. Yeah, it you is. just divide it by um, 5 and, and you're so there. But I'm writing, I'm writing for each little character. I am sometimes writing, okay, here's problem. Here's them struggling with problem. Here's our resolution. And I am doing that, but I'm not doing it all the time for the whole book because I've got so many different cycles of people going through for all of these different things. And you know, in the Wheel of Time book, I'm writing a 700,000-word book. And in that case... You know, I'm not looking at three acts. I'm looking at everyone being divided into multiple little little chunks and yeah. things. And oftentimes I'll have a character who will go through an entire plot structure of three acts and then start a new one in the same book. Oh, yeah. Or, you know, and, or do three groups of three acts and things like that. And so I think it's a good tool to be aware of. But as always, do what works best for you. Try different things. And um, I think being bound too rigidly by something like that doesn't work for me um, when, I'm, when I'm developing a story. Okay, looks like we're out of time. We'd like to thank uh, Brandon Mull for sitting in and um, pitch hitting for us here. Thank you, and Brandon. Yeah, yeah sure. Uh, this has been Writing Excuses. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. 